Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Sixty-five years ago next month, President Dwight D. Eisenhower federalized the Arkansas National Guard and sent 1,200 soldiers from the 101st Airborne Division to escort nine African-American students into Little Rock Central High School. For the next nine months, those nine students would endure physical and verbal abuse, but they were determined not to let that abuse stand in their way. In May 1958, one of the nine was the first African-American to graduate from Central High School. The following fall, the governor closed the school for a year, and when it reopened a year later, two students returned to graduate. Others finished their education and started their careers elsewhere. My guest today is Dr. Terrence Roberts, one of the Little Rock Nine. He will talk about his life in Little Rock, Arkansas, how he became one of the Little Rock Nine, and what he felt as he entered Central High School in September 1957. He will also talk about his life after completing his education and how his experience as one of the Little Rock Nine has influenced his career, his participation in the civil rights movement, and his dedication to equality for all African Americans. So welcome, Dr. Roberts, and thank you for joining me today. My pleasure for being here, and uh, I look forward to our interview. Okay, well, Dr. Roberts, I just wanted to kind of lay the foundation here of your life as a young a young boy uh, and, and your family. So tell us a little bit about where in Little Rock did you and your family live while growing up? I was actually born at home. During those days, uh, many people gave birth at home, and I was among the, that group. Uh, rumor has it, at least family lore suggests, that I was uh, welcomed with great love and compassion when I showed up, and that there was a warm uh, basket full of bricks, warmed bricks, for me to lie in. So I had uh, quite a soft landing, you might say. It was kind of neat as I, I think about it. I have no firsthand account of this, of course, but others suggest that this was true, and I believe them. And at that point, I didn't know much. And it took a while for me to even understand where I was and who these people were hanging around. So that, that's my beginning. And talk a little bit more, Dr. Roberts, about life as a Black child in that community. Well, that was an amazing thing because I couldn't understand how and why the rules of segregation, although I knew nothing of the rules of segregation at that time, were in place. 
it took me a while to sort of piece everything together as a very young kid. But it was puzzling for a number of reasons. One, it made no sense. It seemed irrational. It, it even seemed illegal and immoral, all of those things. And I began to question people in my immediate environment, mostly black people, of course. And I noticed for a number of those folk, there was a reluctance to engage in the conversation. Don't bring that up, boy. You want to get us all killed? So I backed off. I was prudent enough to know that I shouldn't push that button. And, but then I began my own program of information gathering, digging through whatever I could find to get some answers. And that was extremely eye-opening. And even as a very young kid, and this is before I even went to school, mind you. But, and of course, I didn't have much to, to look through. But once I got to school, then the floodgates opened because now I had information about archives and libraries and all of that stuff. And what I found out was extremely shocking. And we'll probably talk about some of those things as we go along. And I was wondering, even in before you went to school, did you or members of your family witness any activities or have personal experiences that demonstrated overt racism? Well, I learned about racism firsthand from my mom. She taught all of us, there were seven kids, and we learned from her what was going on. She explained the reality of uh, legal segregation and I experienced it in shopping with her in communities where uh, white shop owners were very clear that we as customers didn't really matter that much. For instance, if you were to purchase a garment from a white-owned department store, you couldn't try it on. You had to buy it and assume it would fit because once you purchased it, there was no return. So stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, we did learn about racism in all of his forms. Well, and then you, as I said, moved on to grade school, and I'm assuming that at that time you were attending a segregated school. How did you feel about that? What additional observations did you did you have about the state of the state of the community, as it were? Well, when I went to school, I actually went well prepared because uh, black adults in my family, in my neighborhood, always said to me, boy, get your education. And as ungrammatical as I was, I figured out that this was important. I needed to pay attention to this thing called education. When I got to first grade, that was all underscored by the first grade teacher, Miss Waugh. Miss Waugh was a remarkable person. She said to all of us six-year-olds gathered there in her room, you kids, must take on executive responsibility for learning. And she went on in that vein to explain the whys and the wherefores. But at the first, I was captured because that fit with what I thought I needed to do. I needed to learn. I needed to know. I needed to have some answers just for my own mental well-being. See, I couldn't continue obeying these rules of segregation without knowing exactly why I had to do it. And I took off from there. By fourth grade, I was an expert learner honestly. In fact, the fourth grade teacher tried to cram something into my head called manifest destiny. And I knew as she began to explain that stuff, ah, she's been reading the wrong stuff or she has not challenged it. But I didn't say anything because I had also learned that in the educational system, it wasn't prudent for a kid to challenge an adult because bad things could possibly happen. So I started backed off, but I didn't stop learning. I kept at it. And I suspect that your continuing 
to learn about what the situation is led to what happened in in terms of volunteering to attend Little Rock Central High School in 1957? Where were you at that time? Were you in high school already, or how did that work? Yes, uh, there was one high school for all the black kids in Little Rock, as there was one middle school. There were several elementary schools as feeders for the uh, middle school. So I was a 10th grader at Horace Mann High, which was a school designated for black kids at that time, the high school. Uh, The Little Rock School Board decided, for some unknown reason, to obey the Supreme Court decision in 1954, Brown v. Board of Education. And I volunteered along with about 150 other kids, not just at Horace Mann, but they also presented this idea to the middle school kids because the ninth graders were eligible as 10th graders to go to high school. High school was grades 10, 11, and 12 at that time. And that out of, that, out of those two schools came 150 volunteers. This all happened during a school assembly in both places. But that evening when we got home from school and all 150 of us informed our parents, you could hear parental vetoes being exercised all over Little Rock. No, no, no. My child's blood will not flow in the streets of Little Rock. And there, at the end of that, there were 10. We were, for a very brief moment in time, the Little Rock 10. But the 10th child's father received a telephone call from his white employer saying that if he continued to support this notion of integration, he may as well not come back to work. So he pulled her out. Tragically, he lost his job anyway. But we were down to nine. And we didn't give ourselves that name, by the way. Some reporter uh, described us that way, and it stuck. So we became the Little Rock Nine. And did you know the other eight Black students very well? Or did you kind of come together because you had this common goal? We all all knew each other. uh, Because if you were a Black child and you went to middle school or high school in Little Rock, you knew everybody because that was a place. There was no option, no other option. I was more acquainted with some than with others, but I knew everybody there. For instance, in in middle school, I had been the student body president, and Carlotta, who became one of the nine, was the uh, vice president. So we were, you know, working together for a very long time, as it turns out. Okay. And so now here you are, the the nine uh, students who are going to go to Little Rock Central High School in September. Talk about your thoughts as you approached the high school. What was going on, and and what did you feel? Well, I must say, I was a bit naive. I thought people in Little Rock would be upset, and they would give voice to their frustrations about this change. But then, after making their point, they would go home or go back to work or do whatever they did. No. (laughs) They said, we'll be here as long as it takes to keep you out, or if you get in, to drag you out. And if you don't leave voluntarily, we will kill you. So that was what I faced on that first day. It was shocking. And my fear level went up way beyond what I thought it could ever reach. I'd never been that afraid in my life. But a series of events happened, I think, to to keep us safe. One, there were cameras all over the place. Reporters of every stripe were there from all over the country. And television was in its infancy. So these images were beamed out in their black and white, stark reality all over the world. 
So I think a lot of people were a little hesitant to be caught on film saying and doing these things. Some of them were not, of course, and you can see that in the archives. They were pretty bold about it. But I think because of that, there was less opportunity for the more militant to get a following, to have any traction, to gather a mob. And so I was able to walk home safely that first day because we couldn't get into school. But after that, we had to be more circumspect and cautious, and we could not even dream of walking to school anymore. We had to be driven up and escorted by soldiers. And soldiers were inside the school to escort us from class to class as well. But I suspect that even though you were escorted from class to class, there was still a lot of uh, uh, discrimination against you that throughout that nine months that you attended Central High School. Is that correct? Oh, oh yes. Even, even on those walks from class to class, right. we had something I've come to call it a hit and run because I could walk along with my soldiers. Some kid might come up from behind and whack me with a baseball bat or push me down steps and then run. And then the soldier would be faced with the option of chasing or staying. I'd always opt for option two, don't leave. That could simply be some ploy to get you away, and the rest of them would then come and finish me off. So it was like that. And the soldiers couldn't enter the classrooms. They couldn't enter the cafeteria or the auditorium or the bathrooms or the chapel or the library. So we were on our own in those places. And so how many years did you attend Central High School? One year. One year. And so explain to us what then were the circumstances. I mentioned a little bit in my introduction, but talk a little bit more about the circumstances that prevented you from continuing to your senior year at at Central High School? Well, throughout that first year, the opposition was strong and it grew in size and in voice. Crowds were outside the school every single day, yelling, screaming. And if they ever caught sight of one of us in a window or a doorway, that volume went up significantly. And all this stuff happened throughout the year. The governor, in his efforts to be reelected, decided to opt to lead the mob. And he agonized over what to do, but the school year ended in May of 58. Sometime during that summer, he signed an executive order closing down all public high schools in Little Rock, which affected Central. That meant anybody who depended upon public schools would have no option in the fall. Now, kids who could afford private school, and a number of white kids could do that, not very many black kids, or if they had relatives in other nearby cities or out of state, they could go there. And there was a Catholic school for black kids in Little Rock. They uh, were able to accommodate some. And then there was a high school in North Little Rock where some of the black students went. I opted to leave Little Rock. I I went to Los Angeles because I had family there, my dad's family. In fact, all of his family, his siblings and mom had moved from Little Rock in the early 40s. And they were well established in California So I was able to go to California and finish my high school career at Los Angeles High School. But the kids who lost that year got caught up in all kinds of things. Some of them got into drugs or early pregnancies or joined the military and never got back into school. It was very tragic. But when you think about it, Little Rock was not the most egregious example of that kind of stuff. In Prince Edward County, Virginia, The governor closed all schools, all public schools, including elementary, middle, and high schools for four consecutive years. And you think about that. You think about the devastation wrecked on a community when you do that. 
and you rob young children of the opportunity to begin an educational process. That sort of stuff uh, was very prevalent during that time. And I would imagine listeners, as they're hearing your message here, besides you and and your fellow students who were at Central High School, where certainly your lives were in jeopardy almost on a daily basis, were your families or your siblings also uh, impacted by your choice of going to Central High School? Unfortunately, yes. Once it was discovered where we lived, there were drive-by attacks, shootings and all kinds of stuff. Fortunately, nobody got hurt. Even in, in Carlotta's case, her home was bombed. Somebody firebombed the front of the house with dynamite. They were in the back of the house, so nobody was injured. But that was typical of what happened during that time. I think it was just by the grace of God that we survived. I, I can't explain how we survived that thing. You know, I, I look back, you know, I've had that question before, and I, I tell people, I'm trying to piece it together. But there were days when I thought, surely my name's going to wind up on a coroner's list today. But it didn't happen. Well, and that's we are very grateful that you are here to tell your story. So just so I understand, so you graduated in Los Angeles. Is that correct? Yes. And was life different there in terms of the receptivity for you as a black student where you finished your high school education? Not substantially different. Different only in that racism as practiced in Los Angeles was a bit different from the variety of racism practiced in Little Rock. But the underlying problem of institutional racism, oh no, that was still present in in LA. I tried out for the school play. The choir always put on a school play every year, it turns out. And I really was interested in it because I love to sing. And I thought I could sing better than anybody there. That, of course, is a moot point for some, but... Anyway, the choir director pulled me aside, happened to be a white female, and she said, we don't cast black people in lead parts. That's how she put it. As a matter of fact, I mean, she didn't beat around the bush. She just said it straight out. So, yeah, L.A. had all of its stuff going on. And essentially, I had to learn how to navigate the racial terrain in Los Angeles, much like I had to learn how to navigate the racial terrain in Little Rock. And that's still the case. I'm currently living in Georgia after living in California for oh, a lot of years. Last year, we moved to Georgia, and I'm learning to navigate Georgia's racial terrain. But you see, I have all this experience, so it's not that hard for me to do it. It never stops, does it? No, unfortunately. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I I want to hear you. So you graduated in Los Angeles. And what did you decide to do then after high school? Where did you continue your education? What was your course of study, and why did you choose that? Tell us a little bit more about what happened after high school. I wound up going to UCLA as a freshman and spent a year at UCLA. I don't think I was ready for college at that moment. So after that year, I took a year off and wound up re-enrolling in California State University and also changed my major. I started off as a chemistry major, but during that first year at UCLA, I took a summer school course in social sciences. And I looked at sociology and I thought, wow, that may be the thing I need to do. And I thought about becoming some sort of a community organizer and helping black people particularly figure out how to navigate the racial terrain. That was my thinking. 
But as I got into psychology at Cal State, I mean, into sociology at Cal State, it occurred to me that the professors there were content to go into uh, communities of black and brown people in Los Angeles and gather data, but then they would escape back to the ivory tower and process the data and write books and papers and discuss it among themselves. There seemed to be no benefit to the people. So I rethought what I was doing and I went back to UCLA to get a master's in social welfare, thinking, well, surely now I can do what I wanted to do. But once I got into that program, which was a two-year program, most of my classmates were interested in becoming licensed clinical social workers, where they could literally do therapy. And they would say, we will do a half day a week pro bono in the uh, underprivileged communities. That didn't seem to make sense to me either, but I got hooked on this bug of psychology and counseling, and it seemed to be a natural fit. I'm drawn to people anyway, and I love being with people. So I went to Southern Illinois University to get a doctorate in psychology, and that worked. I did that, came back to California, went first to Northern California, the Napa Valley, and spent the first 10 years of my new professional life in that area. After that 10-year period, I moved down back down to Los Angeles. By that time, my wife had completed her degree. She took a PhD in history at UC Berkeley during the time we lived in the Napa Valley. And she got a teaching job at, at a local university in Southern California. And I was at UCLA and she was at Scripps College. And that's how it worked out. And to that point, you obviously were at different uh, educational institutions and throughout getting your various degrees and, and to getting your Ph.D. I'm wondering if at these various educational institutions where you were a faculty member, did the other faculty members and the students that you taught, did they know that you were one of the Little Rock Nine? Oh, yeah, eventually they did. Uh, it always came up. And I had a chance to uh, talk about it with people who were interested. So that's been part of my life. Since wherever I go, eventually somebody finds out. I don't usually announce it in any way, but I remember living in Pasadena. This was probably in 1985. I think we moved there in 1985. My neighbor across the street, a few years after we lived there, came over. I had been recently interviewed in the local Pasadena paper, the Pasadena Star News, it's an article about Little Rock. And he came over and he said, you know, I didn't know anything about that. I used to see those scenes on television when my kids were small, but I changed the channel when they came in the room because I didn't want them seeing all that ugliness. And even though I didn't say this, I thought to myself, wow, you missed a golden opportunity to educate your kids about things racial in this country. Indeed. You allowed them to grow up as a bunch of airheads and now what's going to happen? Because you are in a middle-income position and you can afford to send these kids to universities and they can get degrees and interprofessions without this essential knowledge. And he's just typical of many people. In fact, I counsel many of my Black friends, age group peers, who said to me, we're not going to teach our kids about all this stuff because it's too devastating. I said, please, please don't do that. I'm going to wind up seeing them in treatment. And I did. In a number of cases, their kids came to me for, for help. 
because they were confused. You know what happens if you don't know that there is such a thing as institutional racism, stuff happens and you begin to think, what did I do? How did I cause this? You take on that responsibility. That's very devastating. But in any case, uh, that's part of the message I preach now to people. You have to be willing to allow kids to process the information themselves. Otherwise, they're not equipped. And it's not devastating and damaging because a lot of people think, oh, no, it's too damaging. They're poor souls. They're emotionally weak. <laughs> not at all. Kids are much stronger than we give them credit for. And how long were you then uh, in where you were a PhD? Weren't you also the president of the uh, educational institution there? I just wanted to verify that. No, no, I wasn't. I became, at one point, well, my career started, if you will, in Angwin, California, northern in Napa Valley. And I joined a faculty at a small college. But then a couple of years after that, I became director of mental health at a local hospital. So for about eight years, I was the mental health director. Then when I came down to UCLA, I took a position as assistant dean of the School of Social Welfare, the school I had gotten my master's degree from. And after that, I was there, oh, maybe eight or nine years. Then I became a department chair in psychology at Antioch University. And it was from there that I retired from that particular brand of work being in a classroom or being in academia and simply pursued a um, practice in psychology. Okay. Well, and we're going to talk more about other aspects of your life besides your academic experience in the second half. But I just want to remind our listeners, in case that you tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Terrence Roberts, who was one of the Little Rock Nine, who 65 years ago went was escorted by uh, members of the uh, 101st Airborne Division, escorted into Little Rock Central High School. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Terrence Roberts, one of the Little Rock Nine, who was escorted 65 years ago into Little Rock Central High School as one of the first nine African-American students. And Dr. Roberts, we so appreciated you giving us an overview on the first half of the program. I'd like to talk a little about, about where you are now and some other events besides your academic uh, experience. One of them is that in 1993, actress Sully McCullough portrayed you in the Disney Channel movie, The Ernest Green Story. I'm curious, did you have any connection with the movie production? And what was it like to have an actor play you? Tell us about that experience. Yes, that was actually a fairly interesting experience altogether. I didn't know much about movie making from that perspective. But we, Ernest and I, had to sit down with the 
guys who were portraying us, they needed to get a feel for our personalities so they could more accurately portray who we were. That was the exciting part. What was unexciting was Disney, who, as a corporation, I would say they're cheapskates. So they weren't willing to pay us very much. So we got a token amount of money. I always have, make a joke about that. Reason Disney is so rich, they don't, they don't share any money with anybody. But that apart, I was able to add something to the movie. There was an experience in there that involved a, the use of a switchblade. And once they heard the story, they said, well, could we use that but make it part of Ernie's story? I said, sure, no problem. So a lot of some of it's fiction based on fact. And some of it's, um, there's another part that was made up. There was a street rumble where Ernie's younger brother was involved in fighting. That actually never happened, but they put it in anyway for flair and flavor and color. And it all worked. I mean, the movie itself is good. I mean, it's no Academy Award winning thing, but it's all right. Well, and it was certainly nice to be uh, be seen as a, a player, an actor in a movie as well. I, I would imagine it was kind of exciting. So, um, Well, not, not as exciting as you might okay. think. <laughs> I was just thinking, I got invited once to be on the Oprah Winfrey show, and her people called me, and they were explaining everything. And the young woman who was talking to me, she said, you don't seem very excited about being on Oprah. I said, you know what? Could you tell me a little bit about the show? She said, what, you never seen it? No, at that time, I'd never seen it. I'd barely heard of Oprah at that time. And she was aghast. You've never heard of Oprah. But at any rate, we went on the show. And once again, stinginess was in order because at the end of the show, Oprah's people said, you can take one mug home. And I said, how can I go home with one mug? I have a wife. She want one too. Can I have two mugs? No, one mug. Later on, years later, I bumped into a new employee for Oprah and told her that story. Two weeks later, I got a big package from the Oprah show, full of stuff, <laughs> including mugs. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, I also wanted to ask you about your uh, participation in the presidential campaign of President Barack Obama. Uh, were you an active participant in his campaign? Tell us more about that. Yes, I was. In fact, I had rather an epiphany at some point prior to his election that he would win. I can't base it on any factual stuff. It was just some sense I had. I remember I was out of town at the point. I called my wife and I said, I am booking flights and getting rooms for us to attend the inauguration. She said, what are you thinking about? Are you crazy? And it turns out it was very prescient because we got the cheaper rooms and air flights and we were there. But um, I also participated in fundraising for his campaign. My wife and I became bundlers in Pasadena. So we urged people to contribute money. And we had a little bit of a, a gathering where uh, Barack and Michelle actually came and, and visited and we spent time with them. So that all worked out. And so for eight years, things were really looking good. But you know, even during that eight year period, I said to myself, there will be backlash. I was not at all prepared for the kind of backlash we got with the idiot who came afterwards. But that's another story altogether. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But uh, And I know you were at the, the inauguration as well of uh, President Obama. Yes, for both of them. Um, and that was uh, quite nice, quite nice indeed. I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, I want to hear from you about what you've been doing 
in uh, during your life of of your involvement in issues that are uh, of concern and are focused of of Black Americans. And let let's start with the social justice issues. What what has been the extent of your involvement in social justice issues? I am currently and have been for a long time a board member of the Western Justice Center in Pasadena, California. That's a center that was started by a member of the Ninth Circuit Court. And the focus is on young people, school kids, getting them to understand the need for justice, particularly in their relationships with each other. We have a signature program that's about teaching kids how to be peacemakers at school to limit the amount of violence that appears on campuses. So in that sense, uh, I'm working. On another, I've done writing about issues of social justice and speaking about it as I'm invited around the country to talk to groups. I'm often invited to talk about Little Rock, but I'll use that simply as a starting point and then engage them in a discussion about the need for true social justice. But it's problematic because people are stuck in such ruts. I remember being in Washington, D.C. once. I think it was a Teach for America group. And I was on program. And I also realized that uh, Brian uh, was going, Brian Stevenson of the uh, Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. And I went to hear him because he's such a brilliant guy and had a lot to say about social justice. I got there early and sat down near the front row. And then I realized there was a, a group of people beginning to form a line to my chair. And they were saying things like, oh, we so appreciate you and we, we love your book. And that all fit because, you know, I have written a book or two. And halfway through the line, I realized they think I'm Brian. They think I'm Brian Stevenson. But we were too far into it for me to burst the bubble, so I let it go. But as soon as Brian came in, I rushed up and said, Brian, look, we, we need to stand in front of this group and just chat together and occasionally look out so they can see us as different the different people we are. We did that. Brian spoke, wonderful speech. He left because he had to go someplace else. I'm still there gathering myself. A line forms around my chair again. Same thing. They think I'm Brian. I said, oh, no. <laughs> One guy was so persistent because I had now I had to go do my own seminar, which was in another part of the building. I'm walking. He's walking with me. He said, you don't understand. This is a heavy case, and I really need your assistance. And he's thinking I'm Brian. I said, look, I'll give you my email. I gave him Brian's email. Send me a message. We'll get back to you. As soon as I got to the room, I sent a text to Brian. Look out for this email. (laughs) It was so funny. Uh, But we had a great laugh about it. But it's that sort of life we live in this country. We all look alike, so to speak, even though we don't. Of course not. Of course not. And uh, it's embarrassing sometimes to hear these kinds of stories. And yet this is what you contend with. And uh, again, thank you for, for sharing that that particular event in your life. And speaking of events, you certainly have lived not only in terms of your own experience, but the many other events that affected Black Americans uh, throughout the last, what, 50 years? Talk about that. What what events in our country, you talked a little bit about the election of President Obama, but have there been other events in our country that have had a real impact on your life and your philosophy of what you are doing 
in the past and, and still today? Well, part of my answer to that question includes my knowledge of and understanding of events that actually happened before I was born and then continuing into my life and up to now. And I say that because it's been a continuum. I go back to things like the Dred Scott decision, the Plessy decision of 1896, where the court came up with that famous language of separate but equal. Because you see, in 1896, the Plessy court said in no uncertain terms, and I imagine it when something like this, get it through your thick heads, Americans, we are going to have a racial hierarchy in this country and it's going to be supported by the Constitution. And that was the law of the land when I was born. So for the first 13 years of my life, I lived it under the aegis of the Plessy decision, separate but equal, which always meant separate but never equal in, in reality. And then after that, uh, because now my mind is so honed and ready to see things, I am aware of all the stuff that happens around me. And I'm aware of the fact that today, I get a lot of questions about uh, Black Lives Matter as if it were something new. No, Black Lives Matter is simply the most current iteration of the protests that Black people make in this quest for equality and justice. A young middle school kid asked me that question once, are you involved in Black Lives Matter? And I answered him this way. I said, young man, I was conscripted into the Black Lives Army movement on December 3rd, 1941 and I have been an active soldier since. But it would have been the same as me saying, I am involved in the Nat Turner Rebellion. I'm involved in the John Brown Raid. All of that stuff, you see, historically. But the more contemporary iterations have the same basic foundation. And that is, Black people are saying, we simply want equal justice. By the way, it's the Equal Justice Initiative that Brian runs. So yeah, it's the equal justice that we've been searching for for centuries. Can't seem to find it, but we're still looking for it. And then after Black Lives Matter, there will be other verbiage, on, you know, and people will be astounded then and maybe afraid and maybe astounded. But it's nothing new, nothing new whatsoever. And to the point about Black Lives Matter, I'm wondering if you can comment more as to the different generations, obviously this this program is Aging Matters, and uh, you are of the older generation, as we both are. And I'm wondering if the, as you said, it's called Black Lives Matter now, how you see your generation in terms of attitudes and attempts to make changes as opposed to the younger generations. Is there a difference? Well, only insofar as we of this generation, my generation, exist along a continuum. People in the younger generations exist along their continuum, but there are parallels when you look at the two continuums. You have the extremists on each end and you have most of the people in the middle. That's always true and that's always been true. That will always be true. Why? Because individuals never, ever think the same. No matter what group you belong to, even in that group, you stand alone as an independent thinker. And it's only through the combined action that occurs when someone takes leadership and other people are afraid to speak up, that it seems like you have a leader with a following who accepts what the leader thinks. That's never true. People act in many different ways. They may not believe, but they go along 
out of fear of uh, what happens with peer pressure, perhaps? I don't know. But there are, there are various reasons why people do that. Why people do that. It's like in the case of Kenny Genovese, Kitty Genovese in New York, who was stabbed to death on the street and nobody responded. Uh, I don't know. It's all very interesting to me. I don't have any real answers to that. But what I do know is that it's likely not to change. Because when I look at the historical record, and I was alerted to this by my wife, who's a historian, she says, when I read these old newspapers from the 17th century, it's like reading today's newspaper, different language, different things alluded to, but the essential elements are the same. Nothing has changed. And in fact, I get myself into difficulties sometimes talking to groups because they will want to know, how do I feel about the progress that we've made as if some progress has been made? And I'll always say, look, there's no progress. <laughs> we haven't made any progress because the essential questions have never been answered. We've never even attempted to answer the question of institutional racism because most people say, one, it doesn't exist. It's not here. It's a fantasy. And they're unwilling to even talk about it in any realistic way. But unless we are able to confront the issue, we're never going to be able to resolve it. Right now, we have this great steaming conversation about critical race theory. And most people arguing the points on either side of it don't know what it is. They've never spent time trying to figure out what does that mean? And in my estimate, it simply means teaching young kids the truth. That's all. Teaching them the truth about our history. And it needs to continue as well. And I wanted to weave in the fact that, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, that you had written uh, several books. And I wanted to mention that. The first, of course, was Lessons from Little Rock. And then the second is Simple, Not Easy. So tell us more about what the first one, of course, Lessons from Little Rock. What did you want uh, readers to take away from that? And then what was the focus of your second book? And I guess adding on there, I would say, are you writing another book? And if so, what? So lots of questions here in terms of your, your writing activities in your life. Yes, the Little Rock book was written as a memoir. Basically, it's my story as a young person and then moving into young adulthood. And I offered it up simply as one man's journey, not as prescriptive, but just descriptive. And then the second book, Simple Not Easy, is virtually a collection of essays and talks that I've given. It even includes a couple of sermons that I've given in church. And that book is basically designed to prod people to really begin their own learning process, to begin to read voraciously. I found that uh, the average adult doesn't read very much. They're lost in screens and delving into social media. But in terms of challenging themselves with the written word, I, I think it's imperative that we do that. You find such interesting material, people who write because they feel strongly about something. And I would say, read something that challenges you. Don't read just stuff that you already know. That doesn't help. But be prepared to stretch your mind to take in all of the information and don't accept it simply because it's written down. Challenge the author. Uh, I've done that. You know, I've, I haven't done it much really, but I write to authors sometimes if I have some questions. Oh, I had a delightful experience. I'll share this one. Uh, Nikki Grimes wrote this wonderful memoir called Ordinary Hazards. And I would suggest to you out there in Listenerville 
to pick up a copy of Nikki's book, Ordinary Hazards. I read it. I was moved to write a letter, which I did. I didn't expect a response, but lo and behold, uh, several weeks later, out of the blue, she calls me because I put my phone number on there. And we had a great talk. It was as if she and I had known each other for centuries, simply because she is a person who is willing to confront the truth. I could see that in her writing. I could see that in the way she phrased things. And I thought, wow, here's a person who has her head screwed on just right. I love that. And in my book, in The Simple Not Easy, uh, there's, an, there's an essay in there I wrote about Clarence Thomas, which I would recommend to people, because I knew from the start that this man was bad news for the country, and he's a Supreme Court justice. Should he have been a justice? No. Should he have ever been considered? No. And I lay that at the foot of uh, Joe Biden, who was very active in the process of getting him on the court. Well, all these things mush together, and it's, you know, it's a not a very clean answer to the question, but those are some of the things I think about. And I'm also wondering, is there a book in your future, Dr. Roberts? I'm currently working with a group of uh, black psychologists in Arkansas. There are seven of us working on this book where we are writing about the lives of black psychologists in, in the U.S. who were born in Arkansas. And uh, Mamie Phipps Clark, who along with her husband, Kenneth Clark, were famous or infamous, whatever you will, about the doll study that was involved in the Brown decision, uh, she is there along with several others. It's fascinating, and we hope to have that thing published uh, by 2024. And we'll be on the lookout for that as well. So I wanted to turn to another uh, important event in your life, and that is that you are recipient of the Congressional Gold Medal. And in, in being that recipient, did that particular experience, has that also affected your life in some way? Uh, not so much. Not so much. You know, on occasion, people uh, reference it. But uh, I don't put that much stock in that, that sort of thing. In fact, I have boxes and boxes of medals and ribbons, and uh, I don't have them hanging about. Um, you know, I go into the homes of some of my nine, Little Rock Nine colleagues, and they have stuff on the walls. Uh, I have very little. In fact, I have one picture of myself and family members with President Clinton, but that's about it. Um, and I have that mostly up for the family because they love seeing themselves. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm more a bare walls person. <laughs> I see, I see. Well, I wanted to come back to uh, kind of almost full circle in terms of this interview and and find out, have you gone back very often to Little Rock? Were you ever a participant in any kind of community activities as an adult? Were you invited back in some way? What's been your experience? Oh, yeah. I, I go to Little Rock all the time. Okay. I get invited back most currently by the National Park Service because the school is now part of the National Park Service. And you can go visit it. Uh, if you're a National Park member or if you're, even if you're not, you can go there. And there is a visitor center across the street. But before that, I was hired by the Little Rock School Board to be their desegregation consultant. That was in 1998. I was surprised to get the call because I didn't think they were interested in desegregation. They didn't seem to be. Uh, even uh, after 1957, there's no real focus or motivation to do it. 
But I interviewed with the superintendent and he told me all of this stuff, which wasn't true. And I challenged him. I said, you know what? I don't believe you. And I think if I do take this job and you find out what I'm doing, you'll probably fire me on the spot. He laughed. He said, oh, no, no, we're not going to fire you. We were committed. I knew he wasn't. True enough, four years later, he fired me. Took him a while. He was a little slow. But that's the way things go. And they have been in deep trouble even before 57. And you would think that after that, they might be doing something positive. No, no. Even now, they're in big trouble in terms of uh, making sure that they're doing things that are equitable across racial lines. They're not. And whether they will ever do it in Little Rock, I don't know. I doubt it. I mean, their history is so clouded with segregation and separation. It's going to be difficult for them to even put that on the table. I was also wondering, Dr. Roberts, you mentioned a moment ago about your fellow uh, members of the Little Rock Nine having pictures on the wall. Have you stayed in touch with the other members of the Little Rock Nine? And if so, in what way? Oh, yeah. Uh, There are eight of us who remain. Jeff Thomas died about 12 years ago now. But we are a family. We consider ourselves part of the same family. And we'll be going to Little Rock in a few days because we're doing a 65th anniversary celebration of stuff in Little Rock. And I'll be there for about four days doing programs. We hang out together as much as we can. Uh, Two of our group live outside the continental U.S. It's always great when they show up and we have a chance to see each other face to face. And I'm sure that they have stories to tell in terms of what their lives have been like as well after Little Rock at Central High School. Oh, right. Eight eight different stories. Eight different stories. In fact, I've encouraged all of them to write their own books. And several have. Carlotta has a book out. Um, Melba has written several books. I think she's up to five now. And Ernie has talked about it, but he hasn't done it yet. Same thing with Minnie Jean. Someone else wrote a book about Thelma with her participation. And same thing with Elizabeth. So there are a few books out there with our very varying stories. And it's well to, to look at all those books because you'll see everything slightly different because it's from that unique perspective of the other person. You are now a management consultant and have your own business. I, is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right. And and as I, again, I looked about uh, what the focus is, the, the, um, the hope is to achieve equitable practices in industry and business. So I'd like to hear more about how you decided to become a management consultant and how do you achieve this very lofty goal uh, in industry and business? That's a, that's a pretty big requirement and be curious to hear more about that. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I sort of uh, backed into it. I was at a gathering one of my wife's faculty gatherings, I went along as a tag-along husband with no real job to do except to deplenish the wine supply. But I bumped into a man there who was one of the board members who was a billionaire oil industrialist with oil outfits all over the world. We talked, had a fascinating conversation, then he casually mentioned that he was having difficulty with an outfit in San Francisco. He gave me a brief outline of what the problems were were, and they were all about people, nothing to do with oil, just the, the people. I said, I can help you with that. And I told him a little bit about my psychological background. He said, oh, 
let me see a proposal. A couple of days later, I sent it to him. He liked it. We did it. He paid me. And I thought, whoa, this is an income stream that I never even dreamed of. So I actually, at that point, began to do it on a part-time basis. I still had the practice. But then the practice began to interfere with these duties. So I closed the practice down and became full-time consultant. And it's been that way ever since. But it's been fascinating because my thinking is I can affect larger groups of people doing that rather than have one-on-one sessions in the office, limited number of people I can see. This way, I can go in and talk to entire groups of people in these businesses. And my approach is simply to say to them that we have to imagine how it's possible to do this differently. And what I mean by that is how to interact together differently. That's basically the point of what I do. No magic to it. Just very basic stuff. You know, how to say, hello, my name's Terry Roberts. Can we talk? And a lot of people, even managers, don't know how to do that. They're afraid to do it or they haven't been equipped to do it. I don't know what the reasons are. But you have a lot of people in management who have absolutely no idea what they're doing. And my job is to help them. And to that point, we are just about out of time, but I wanted to ask one final question, Dr. Roberts, and that is, how would you like to be remembered? Well, I consider myself to be an image bearer of our creator. And I would like for people to remember me that way, somebody who saw everyone else as my neighbor. Whoever you are in the world, you are my neighbor. And my essential task is to help you in any way I can. That's how I'd like to be remembered. Well said, Dr. Roberts, Dr. Terrence Roberts. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. And I really appreciate it. And I wish you well and uh, hope that you can continue to do what you have been doing throughout your life. So thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome, and thank you for the invitation. All right. Well, I just wanted to remind our listeners that if you also want to learn about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And, of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio and TV show content that we've produced, as well as logging on to the Aging Matters podcast, which can be found on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that company by logging on to inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you so much for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Music.